out of the downstairs area early enough for the uh, uh, prep school or junior church to start their operation, which is good. I think it's got everybody who has something to do with running the worship service a little confused because everybody gets up here and is seated and still five, six, seven minutes early and everybody's kind of wondering, well, is it time to start because everybody's here? I mean, after so many, it's sort of like a Pavlovian response to the fact that, well, if everybody's here, we ought to start. So those of you who are not here for the first hour and tend to come late, you're going to have trouble because the tendency with the song leaders, I've noticed, is to try to start things one or two minutes early. So it's going to make everybody seem like they're running a, a little bit late. And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes in Him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit, and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Let's open God's Word this morning to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, and we continue this remarkable discourse on the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of the uh, passages that is least studied on the deity of Christ and is just chock full of vital information and on this important doctrine. Before we get started, we need to make sure that we are indeed ready to study God's Word and to assimilate these important spiritual truths. And we do that by virtue of confession of sin. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, that is, to God the Father, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is not simply a mechanical, rote thing that you go through disengaging your mind but is a process of admission as part of our personal relationship to the Lord where we admit, acknowledge our sins to Him, and we are instantly forgiven and restored to fellowship. So let's begin with silent prayer, and then we'll pray. Father, we thank You for the opportunity we have today to look at Your Word to Look into the mirror of your word where we see the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Where in this passage we understand who he is in his eternal relationship to you. And that is the basis for why he is able to go to the cross. To die on the cross for our sins that we might have eternal life. Father, now as we study these remarkable truths in your word, we pray that we might understand them. Have clarity of thought and concentration that we might assimilate these doctrines into our soul that we might advance to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We live in an era today when people just don't seem to care a lot about doctrine. Uh, 
It's amazing if you study history and you go back into the Reformation and you realize that people were fighting and dying. People were being burned at the stake over very, what we would consider today very minute theological issues. That is because in earlier eras, what you believed mattered. It said something about ultimate reality, and there was a belief in ultimate reality. Today, people, especially Americans, because we live in a pluralistic society, get the idea that that means that everything has equal validity. Pluralism means that we have the freedom to practice and to believe whatever we want. It does not mean that everything we believe is equally valid. That is something that is commonly misunderstood. But we live in an era today where because we think that everything is equally valid, everything is okay, which ultimately means nothing is okay. And we have to get back to looking at basics of doctrine, that there are issues in life that are worth dying for. And those issues ultimately relate to that which is in the Word of God, and this is ultimate reality. And one of the most important doctrines that we can study is that related to the deity of Jesus Christ. For you see, if Jesus was not who He claimed to be, then we have no salvation, and that we are just wasting our time every Sunday studying the Word of God. We might as well be home, sleeping late, watching television, enjoying an old movie, having a very leisurely cup of coffee and reading the newspaper as coming to to church. But the fact is that Jesus is God. And it is very clear from the Scriptures that He made those claims to be God, in spite of the fact that the thrust of modern theology is to deny the deity of Christ. I recently read a little book review of a book that's all about how People reinterpret Jesus Christ in terms of their current uh, philosophical concepts. And in this article, it quoted a black theologian saying that Jesus was black because he was oppressed as blacks are. And someone else said that Jesus was was a poor person. So we need to look at the ultimate meaning of the cross is poverty because Jesus had lost everything. And then some feminists said, well, the only way I can relate to the cross, it's such a patriarchal idea that we must dismiss everything. And the only way that I can appreciate it is if I think of it in terms of menstrual cramps. Now, I want you to think that this is what goes today as sophisticated scholarship in Christianity. And it's absolutely absurd and has nothing to do with the Bible. It's given birth to such things as this Jesus Seminar. I don't know if you've read about that in the papers. That's a group of scholars who are trying to decide just exactly what in the Gospels was actually said by Jesus. And these scholars get together every year or so, and they go through the Gospels, and they take out their uh, red-letter pens, and they try to decide just exactly what was said by Jesus, and they rank everything in an order of importance. And it is just the arrogance and the silliness of man to deny the divine authorship of Scripture and that Jesus claimed to be God. But of course what they say is that this is not reflect these statements here that we're studying in John are not those that are in fact true sayings of Jesus, but this is what someone much later wrote that Jesus said. That John was not written by the Apostle John in the first century, 
but this was written by somebody who purported to be John, writing under the assumed name of John some 150 to 200 years later. That's how liberalism gets away with it. They completely deny the claims of Scripture that it was written as eyewitness accounts of the life of Christ, but that these just were sayings that, and legends that developed and were written down 150, 200 years later. The problem with that is that the internal testimony of the Gospels and the writings of Scripture are completely against that. Now, a lot of this had its roots, or one of the most prominent aspects of this was a book written in the early uh, 60s uh, by, by a scholar by the name of John A.T. Robinson. I believe the name of the book was Honest to God, and he argued that things were written much later. But he came to realize on the basis of a lot of the internal evidence of Scripture, he was a very liberal theologian, and he eventually argued for dates that were earlier than even conservatives would argue for. But see, once you divorce yourself from the truth of Scripture, instead of taking the Scripture's evidence and witness of itself uh, as, a, as a true witness, you try to use experience to determine everything in rationalism, and you end up changing every 10 or 20 years as a result of whatever the moods of the current philosophy are, because you're not anchored to anything of absolute value anymore. So when we come to the Gospel of John, we realize that this is indeed an eyewitness account written by an apostle who lived into his 90s and probably wrote this this apostle towards the I mean this uh, uh, gospel towards the end of his life, somewhere between 90 and 95 A.D. and is the mature reflection of this apostle upon all that Jesus said and all that Jesus taught. And in John chapter 5, we have this remarkable encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees. And it's been a couple of weeks since we've studied this, so I want to remind you of the context. Jesus has just healed the sick man, the cripple, lame man, in, at the pool of Bethesda. In the first, this is covered in the first uh, nine verses of the, of the uh, chapter. And it was on the Sabbath day. And Jesus has left his disciples. He's, he's just made this uh, trip to... Uh, Jerusalem for the feast day. We're not told which feast day it is. He's made the trip, and he's there alone. And it seems that Jesus is doing this specifically to challenge the Pharisees. He has, we know from comparison with other Gospels, already healed on the Sabbath and performed various miracles on the Sabbath and violated the Pharisaical interpretation of the sabbatical law several times. And this time he is going to go right to the heart of, of Jerusalem and perform a healing on the Sabbath in front of everybody to bring this whole confrontation to focus in front of the entire populace so they will have to make a decision. And in the midst of this confrontation, Jesus is going to challenge the Pharisees with his claims to deity. And we have studied this already. We have seen that, that in his initial answer in verse 17... He uses um, he, the phrase, he, he, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. And here he is using the same verb for the father and for himself to show that he is engaged in the same work as the father. And we will see in our study of this passage that there are five key verbs that are used down through verse 23, which demonstrate the deity of the Son, and that the Son is claiming to have the exact authority, or the exact, it claims to be carrying out the exact same work 
as God the Father. And the Pharisees understood this in their response in verse 18, that he was making a declaration of his equality with God. Now, this is equal in a good sense, that he is of the same uh, attributes as God. This is not equal in the sense of, of autonomy or independence of God. So often when people today claim equality, they want equal rights. What they're saying is, I want to be out from under authority and I want to do what I want to do. And they're claiming sort of a, an insubordinate sense to their claims to equality. You see this in the feminist movement. You see this in many uh, minority movements that are making certain claims to equality. And they are really wanting to go their own way as opposed to uh, a sense of unity. Whereas when Jesus says our claims to be equal with the Father, there is a unity. He is co-equal, co-infinite, and consubstantial with the Father. That means he is of the same substance as the Father, one in essence with God the Father. They have all the same attributes, making Jesus one with God. Now we come down to verse 19. Here we read, Jesus therefore answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. Now, when Jesus begins any statement with verily, verily in the King James, or truly, truly, in the Greek it is amen, amen, He is going to make a point of doctrine, and He is going to emphasize a very important principle that we need to pay attention to. And here He says, the Son can do nothing of Himself. And this is the second set of verbs, the second verb in this series that is going to emphasize the deity of Christ. And here we have the general word to do or to make, and it is in the Greek poieo, P-O-I-E-O, and has various nuances to make, to do, to apply. And here it has the idea of doing. He is going to be doing, carrying out, the plan of the Father. Begins for, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself. This means that He is not acting independent of the Father. He is not exercising His will independently of the Father, but that He is completely subordinate to the Father. He is equal to the Father in terms of His divine essence, who He is. But He is voluntarily subordinate to the will and the plan of the Father. He can do nothing of Himself that is independent of the Father's will and plan. He can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. So He sees the Father doing it in terms of, uh, we use the analogy at the time, an apprentice would watch the Master. And the apprentice would watch the master and observe how the master carried out the craft and then he would imitate him. He was completely under the authority of the master. At times, sometime in the future, the apprentice would think that he could do it as well as the master and he would declare his independence, that he was equal to the master. And there you have equality in that negative sense of independence and insubordination And Jesus is clarifying this and saying, no, it's not this insubordinate sense. The Son can do nothing unless it is something He sees the Father doing. So He is completely consistent with the Father's plan. Now, the first time we have poieo, it is a present, present, active, infinitive, which demonstrates the purpose 
of the Incarnation. Truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself. Doing nothing is a present active infinitive of purpose. The purpose for His life in the Incarnation is not divorced from the will and the plan of God the Father. Unless He sees the Father doing it. And here we have a present active participle of poieo, which indicates the continuing oversight of God the Father in terms of the plan. Remember, the Father is the architect of the plan. The Son is the one who carries out or executes the plan. And the Holy Spirit is the revealer of the plan. So the first verb, the infinitive, emphasizes the Son's purpose within the plan. The participle indicates the, the continual oversight of God the Father in regards to the plan. And then we read a, f- a further explanation. Whenever we have in the Greek the particle gar, G-A-R, it always indicates an explanation of a principle. So now that he has stated the principle that the Son can do nothing of himself unless he sees the Father doing it, he then explains this by saying, for whatever the Father does. Now, that looks like it's a finite verb in the English, but it's not in the Greek. Or it's not an indicative mood, rather. What it is, it is a present, active, subjunctive. Now, the subjunctive mood in the Greek is the mood of potentiality. The indicative mood is the mood of reality. Now, that does not mean that every indicative statement is real, but it is viewed from the viewpoint of the speaker as real. The subjunctive is viewed as potential. So here when it says, for whatever the Father does, that is the potentiality of the Father's plan from eternity past, these things the Son also does. And there's a shift from the present active subjunctive to the present active indicative. So the Son brings the plan, the potentiality of the plan, into reality. So in these four different senses of this one verb, poieo, we see the entire scope of the plan of God. The Father as the architect, the Son as the one who executes it and brings it to completion and into reality. This is why from this verse and these verses we see that anyone who makes this claim that Jesus is not fully God is totally divorced from the Scriptures. This is a a classic argument in apologetics. And it is called, the one writer calls it, Lord, liar, or lunatic argument. Jesus claims in these passages to be God. Now, we only have two options. Either Jesus is making a true statement, or Jesus is making a false statement. Those are the only two options. If He's making a true statement, then Jesus is one in essence with the God of the universe. If Jesus is God, then nothing else matters. If Jesus isn't God, then nothing matters. That's the essence. 
Because if there is no God, then nothing matters. All is random chaos. There's no solution to the sin problem. In fact, the evolutionists are correct in sin and death and evil and suffering are just part of the normal operation of the universe and we are indeed hopeless and chaos rules. But if Jesus is God, then sin and evil and suffering have been introduced into the cosmic system. They are not normal. They are the result of the negative volition of the creature, and God has provided a perfect solution, and ultimately there will be a universe again where there is no more evil, suffering, or death. So if Jesus is God, then nothing else matters but to know about Him and to fulfill His plan for our lives. If Jesus is not God, then nothing matters. So either the statement is a true statement or it's a false statement. If it's true, Jesus is God, and we need to devote ourselves continually to that and make learning doctrine our highest priority. If it's false, then you only have two options. Jesus uh, is knowingly deceptive, or he is unwittingly deceptive. If he is being knowingly deceptive and he is conscientiously lying, then he is a liar. If he believes that he is the Lord and he is not, then he is a lunatic. He is on the lunatic fringe and he is crazy. So you only have three options. Jesus Christ is either the Lord of the universe... He is a liar and the most deceptive of all men who've ever walked on the earth and therefore one of the most evil people who ever lived. Or he is a lunatic. You have no option. You cannot say, well, Jesus is a good man. Jesus was a great model of morality. Jesus is a religious innovator. But no, he's not God. That option is not available to anyone and yet that's the option everybody wants because in spiritual rebellion they're trying to deny the claims of the gospel, and assert human authority. Jesus' claims do not give us any room to say that he was simply a good man or religious teacher. Verse 20. Jesus says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. I want to stop a minute and look at this word for love. Now, there are four different words used for love in the Greek language, only two of which are used in the Scriptures. The two verbs that are used for love in the Scriptures are agapao, A-G-A-P-A-O, and phileo, P-H-I-L-E-O. Now, a lot is made about these two verbs, and should be, and there's a lot of important things to say about both of them. But I just want to stop and go back to some real basic understandings here, because sooner or later, somebody, you're going to hear somebody say that this, that agapao is divine love, and phileo is human love. And that's somebody who's had about maybe three weeks of Greek, or they read something in a book somewhere, Because agapao is commanded of believers. I mean, husbands are to love their wives. That's agapao love. It's it's not just divine love. And it's not just modeled on divine love. 
And phileo is not simply human love. So those are false definitions. Phileo love has more to do with intimacy and friendship. It's not, don't confuse these two words with our categories of personal and impersonal love. Because personal and impersonal love may apply to both of these Greek words. That's why sometimes when we start making uh, doctrinal categories, we, we can get away from what the Scripture says and enter into some levels of confusion. To explain the, the relationship of these two words, I'll draw two concentric, concentric circles. The outer circle defines agape love. The inner circle describes philos love. These are the nouns. Now, everything, including philos love, is a subcategory. Remember sets and subsets back when you were in mathematics? Well, philos is a subset of agape love because it is a subcategory. But philos does not necessarily include agape love. So it has different elements because it involves levels of intimacy that you don't necessarily have to have with agape love, but may be present in agape love. For example, husbands are commanded to love their wives just as Christ Love the church. And the command there is agape love. Well, that certainly includes intimacy and friendship and attractiveness as part of philos love. But see, philos love doesn't always get you there when you're having difficulties or conflicts and you have to go back and rely on the impersonal aspects of agape love. But agape love can include both impersonal and personal love, and philos, though, is more related to personal love. One of the more interesting observations that we make is that when God is the subject and philos is the verb, only believers, I mean in terms of creatures, only believers are the object of God's philos love. God does not have philos love, phileo love, for unbelievers. Only for believers. God has agape love for unbelievers. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That's agape love. Now the reason this is important is because there's always somebody who's going to come along and they're going to go to Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, and they're going to use this to explain salvation. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Now, I'm sure that at some point or another, most of you have heard somebody go to this verse and say this is a salvation verse. So, let's look at it. Is this talking about salvation? Talking to unbelievers or believers? Well, first of all, we have the imagery here of Dinner. Dinner is a fellowship image throughout the Scriptures. When people get together in the Scriptures and sit down over dinner and eating like the communion supper, the Lord's Supper, that's a communion meal. It, it, it speaks of fellowship, not salvation. Furthermore, if you look at the context, this is a, a short 
postcard written to the church in Laodicea. The last time I noticed the church in Scripture related to believers and not to unbelievers. Now, we all recognize that there are unbelievers that are part of any local church, but primarily they churches are assumed to include mostly believers. Furthermore, when we come to verse 19, the preceding verse, we read, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Now, God does not reprove and discipline unbelievers. For whom the Lord loveth, He chastens as a son. He, he disciplines those who are in the royal family, not those who are outside the, the, the royal family. So you need to make that observation. But the most telling observation is that the verb here is phileo. It is not agapao. And since God does not have phileo love for unbelievers, it tells us very clearly in the Greek that Revelation chapter 3 is addressed to believers and divine discipline and fellowship and not to unbelievers. So that helps us to understand what John is telling us about the Father's love for the Son in John chapter 5, verse 20. For the Father loves the Son. There is an intimacy here, a closeness, an attraction. God the Son is perfect righteousness and justice just as God the Father is perfect righteousness. And the righteousness of God can love only perfect righteousness. So because they share perfect righteousness and justice and have all of the same attributes, there is a level of intimate love between the Father and Son that far surpasses anything that we can ever imagine. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things. The Father loves the Son and shows Him all things. And this relates to a passage in Amos chapter 3. Let's go back and look. Hold your finger here and look at Amos 3 verse 7. That's in the Old Testament, towards the end, in the Minor Prophets. You have the twelve Minor Prophets, Hosea, Joel, and then Amos. The Minor Prophets are called Minor Prophets not because they have less significance, but because they are smaller books. The major prophets are Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and those are very large books, and these are called Minor Prophets only in the English. The Hebrew, they are lumped together as one, and called the twelve, because there are twelve minor prophets. So, Amos chapter 3, verse 7 reads, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless He reveals His secret counsel. He reveals, this is a doctrine of revelation, He reveals His secret counsel to His servants, the prophets. Now, this idea of God's revelation the deep revelation, secret revelation of God to his prophet is the idea that underlies John 5.20. See, Jesus is picking up all kinds of ideas from the Old Testament. The last time we studied this, we traced the concept of sonship all the way through the Old Testament and saw how that related to Messiahship, to the, king, to the uh, son of David, the future king of Israel as a fulfillment of the uh, Davidic covenant, and how when Jesus used the word son, when he, back in verse 19, when he used the word son, that had a tremendous amount of theological baggage with it that the Pharisees understood. 
So when Jesus says here, the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things, He is claiming His position as a prophet related to Amos chapter 3, verse 7, that the Father is revealing all things to Him. Not like the prophets where it was just partial revelation, but He is the greater prophet, and the Father is showing Him all things that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him that you may marvel. So the emphasis here is on the revelation that God has given to the Son and that He is the perfect prophet, the ideal prophet. And this sets Him apart from all other prophets in human history, all of the Jewish prophets and all of the other so-called prophets of religion from Buddha, Muhammad, Mary Baker, Glover, Patterson, Eddie, Joseph Smith, whomever might claim to be a prophet today throughout human history, Jesus is set apart by this as the greatest prophet in a class by himself. He is the ideal or perfect prophet. Verse 21, he continues, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so... The Son also gives life to whom He wishes. So this begins, in the Greek, with an analogy. This analogy is indicated by a couple of particles. It begins with the word hosper, and then in the middle we have hutas, hutos. First is H-O-S-P-E-R, and then H-O-U-T. OS. And what this indicates is an analogy and comparison between the Son and the Father. They have the same functions here. For just as, in the same way, as the Father raises the dead and gives them life. Now, here, when he speaks of the Father, he says the Father raises the dead on the one hand. This is a reference to the resurrection of Christ and gives them life. The Son, notice, it drops out the reference to raises the dead. That's because it is the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. He did not raise Himself from the dead in the resurrection. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. So here we have the phrase, Zoopoeo, Z-O-O-P-O, I-E-O. And this refers to life and poieo for making or giving life. So Jesus claims to have the same authority to give life and to be the source of life as the Father. So He is clearly claiming divine prerogative as the source of life. The Son also gives life. And then here we have an interesting phrase and an interesting exegetical problem in the Greek. Even so, the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. And here we have the word Thelo. T-H-E-L-O meaning to will or to desire. And it is in the third person singular which means He wills. 
Now here's an interesting question. To whom does the He refer? Does the He refer to God the Son or God the Father? Look at the verse. Even so, the Son also gives life to whom God the Father wishes or God the Son. Now see, some of you have already caught the main thrust of this whole section. That is, that God the Son does not operate independently of the will of God the Father. So when it says here, the Son also gives life to whom He wishes, it is He is the source of giving life, but the He refers to God the Father, not to God the Son. It is God the Son is in the position of carrying out the will and the plan of God the Father. Verse 22, For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. And now we come to another verb here related to deity. So far we have seen, we have seen three. We saw ergodzomai, E-R-G-A-Z-O-M-A-I, We've seen Ergodzomai back in verse 17. My Father is working until now and I am working. And this relates to sustaining the creation. Jesus Christ is in the process of sustaining creation until it comes to fruition. All of God's plan comes to fruition. This means Jesus Christ controls history. Jesus Christ controls the environment. So you don't have to be all caught up and wrapped around the axle about environmental problems and the ozone layer and everything else because man is not capable of destroying the environment. Because Jesus Christ controls the environment, He is the sustainer of creation and not man. Ergodzomai relates to that doctrine. Poieo was the second verb we saw. And this relates to carrying out the plan of God. So Jesus Christ carries out the will and the plan of God. The third verb is zao poieo, which means that Jesus Christ gives life to those whom the Father wills. That's been delegated to Him, and He has the same power of giving life as the Father. And now we come to the fourth, which is the verb krino, K-R-I-N-O, which is judgment. Judgment is delegated from God the Father to God the Son. Why? Because it is God the Son who goes to the cross to die as our substitute. God the Son goes to the cross, and while He is on the cross, God the Father imputes to the Son all the sin, all the sins of human history, and He pays the penalty. He carries our sins in His body on the cross. Now, because Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for sin, He is the one now who is qualified to sit in judgment on mankind. Because what happens? You have a person come along and they operate on negative volition and reject the gospel. They are saying that your righteousness, the righteousness that I would receive from Christ, is not good enough, so I am rejecting that, and instead I am going to rely on my own righteousness, which is a relative righteousness, to get into heaven. Well, the only one who has earned the right 
to sit in judgment is the Lord Jesus Christ who in perfection and in impeccability was made sin for us that we who, um, so that we might ha- gain the righteousness of God. But if we don't have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, then we have to be judged not on the basis of sins. Never says that we're sent to hell. We're not sent to hell for sin. What does John 3.18 say? He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already. The basis for condemnation is rejection of the cross, not for sin, because sins were paid for When you reject Christ at the cross, you are rejecting His righteousness, the imputation of His righteousness, and you are, the unbeliever is in effect saying that I'm going to make it on the basis of my own righteousness. And so at the great white throne judgment, the final judgment in history, God the Son is the judge, and He says my righteousness is the righteousness required to get into heaven, so let's evaluate your life on that basis, and it won't add up, and you won't get into heaven. So what we learn in verse 22 is a fourth aspect of Jesus Christ's deity, that He is one with the Father, and that is because judgment, ultimate judgment, has been delegated to Him. He says, For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. So, the first advent, Jesus did not come to judge, but He will judge at the second coming, and then at the great white throne judgment. The purpose for judgment is given in verse 23, which brings us to our fifth verb for the deity of Christ. In order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. And this is the verb timao. T-I-M-A-O. In order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. And this is a verb, it's translated honor, but it should more likely, more correctly be translated worship. He is claiming the prerogative, the divine prerogative of worship, that He should be worshipped just as the Father is worshipped. In order that all may worship the Son even as they worship the Father. And this is what we see at the end of Philippians chapter 2 in a very similar passage on the deity of Christ, that there will come a time when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. See, He links Himself so closely. The Father and the Son are linked together so closely that worship of one is worship of the other and rejection of one is rejection of the other. Now remember that because later on Jesus will say that you must believe the Father to be saved. Well, He's not saying just believe in God to be saved. He has laid down the principle here that they are united so closely that acceptance or rejection of one is acceptance or rejection of the other. So to believe the Father is tantamount to believing everything about the Son in terms of His death, burial, and resurrection. He's not saying simply believe in God, just some sort of generic belief in God that that will save you. He's tied it in together at this point. Believing one is belief in the other. Worshiping one is worshiping the other. 
Now, I want to stop here and just review the doctrine of the deity of Christ. The doctrine of the deity of Christ. We have seen this clearly stated now in these five verbs in this passage. Ergodzomai, poieo, zoopoein, krino, and tamao. The sustaining work, the work of the, carrying out the plan, giving life, judging all men, and worship. In all of these aspects, God the Son equates Himself, Jesus equated Himself with God the Father. So let's just summarize the doctrine of the deity of Christ. First of all, divine names are given to Jesus. Divine names are given to Jesus. What are some of these? Well, He is called God. He is called God in John 1.1. Some of these are fundamental passages. John 1.1, Hebrews 1, 8-9. John 20, 28, Romans 9, 5, Titus 2, 13. I'm not going to, I could give you many more passages, but I'm just going to try to give four or five passages for each one of these. He's called the Son of God. The term Son of God, as we saw, indicates identity with something. So to call Him the Son of God does not mean He derives from God but that he is, he is God. That it's an indication of the essence of something. For example, if you were a prophet, you'd be called the son of the prophets. That does not mean you derive from the prophets, but that you were a prophet. So to call Jesus the son of God means that he is God. This title is applied over 40 times to Jesus. Uh, Matthew 16, 16, 16 through 17, uh, 8, 29, uh, John 5:25, and in 9:3, John 3, uh, 3 uh, many other passages. And then only begotten Son of God, which is monogenes, the unique Son of God. We have this in John 1:14, John 1:18, John 3:16, and 3:18 where He is called the only begotten or unique uh, Son of God. Another time that He is, that indicates His deity is when He is called Lord. When Jesus Christ is called Lord, this does not relate to sovereignty or to His being a master, but it relates to the Old Testament Hebrew designation of God as Yahweh. Y-A-H-W-E-H. This is the sacred tetragrammaton. Whenever the Jews would read this, instead of stating the name, they always read this instead. Adonai, which simply means Lord. And they read that in place of the personal name for God out of respect for the person of God and for His name. So, when Jesus is called Lord, this relates to His deity, identifies Him with Yahweh in the Old Testament. Passages here would be Romans 14.9, 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Timothy 6. 
15. Now, the interesting thing about this is that Yahweh in the Old Testament, most people think of as referring to the Father. Although it is sometimes used of the Father, and sometimes of the, rarely of the, Old, of the Holy Spirit, but a few times, mostly it indicates the Son. Now, this is fascinating. Psalm 23.1 says, The Lord is my shepherd. So in Psalm 23.1, Yahweh is the shepherd. But what does John 10.11 say? John 10.11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. But let's look at 1 Peter 5.4. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4 reads, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And then Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20 reads, Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. What does this tell you? The New Testament identifies the shepherd as the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament, when it speaks of the shepherd, Yahweh being the shepherd, it's speaking of the second person of the Trinity. It's not talking about the Father. Now, when I was thinking about that, I thought there are a number of other things attributed in the Old Testament to Yahweh. Is that referring to first, second, or third person in the Trinity? So we have ten examples of how the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ is referred to as Yahweh exclusively in the Old Testament. Point number one, he is called the shepherd in Psalm 23.1 in comparison with John 10.11, Hebrews 13.20, and 1 Peter 5.4, which we just looked at. The Old Testament Yahweh is called the Savior in Isaiah 45.15. And also in 21 and 22, Isaiah 45.15, 21 and 22 identifies Yahweh as the Savior. And when we compare that in the New Testament to Luke 2.11, to Matthew 1.21, and John 4.42, we see that it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is the Savior. So Isaiah is referring to the second person of the Trinity. Third, Yahweh restores sight in uh, restores sight to the blind in Psalm 146 verse 8. And in Matthew 9:29 to 30, it is Jesus who restores sight to the blind. Jesus is identified with Yahweh. Fourth, Yahweh's name alone is exalted in Psalm 148, verse 13. Psalm 148, verse 13, and in 8, 1 through 1 and 9, it is Yahweh's name alone that is exalted. But in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, it is the Lord Jesus Christ's name that is exalted. So the Lord Jesus Christ then is identified with Yahweh. Fifth, Yahweh means I am. The root meaning, it's a, it's derived from the root verb, Hayah, which means to be, and is translated as I am, that I am. So Yahweh means I am in Exodus 3, 14. 
And if we compare that with John 8.24, John 8.58, Mark 6.50, and Mark 14.2. Let me give those to you again. John 8.24, John 8.58, Mark 6.50, and 14.2. We see that Jesus claimed to be I am. In fact, you can trace this through John and we'll see that he uses this phrase in the Greek. It is ego ami. That's E-G-O, E-I-M-I, the verb to be, I am. And Jesus uses this a number of times to indicate His deity. I am. I am the door. I am the great shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And there's a number of references where He simply says, I am. He makes a, In the Greek, it's real clear. In the English, they translate it out into a sentence. But in the Greek, there's just a, a, a direct statement, ego and me, period. But in the English translations, they want to add something to it and not just leave it hang there as I am. And in each of these instances, it, he is making a claim to deity. John 4.42, John 6.41 and 48 and 51, John 8, verse 12 and 24, John 9.9, 9, John 10, 7, 9, and 11. John 11, 25. John 13, 9. John 14, 6. And in a few of those instances when Jesus made this claim, the Pharisees would immediately reach down to pick up stones to stone Him. Now, sophisticated American audiences might not appreciate the fact that, that Jesus is claiming to be God, but the Jews who knew a whole lot more about it than we do knew when he said, Ego me that he was claiming to be one with Yahweh in the Old Testament, and they saw it as blasphemy and wanted to stone him on the spot. So that was the fifth point. Yahweh means I am, and that is clearly applied to Jesus many times in the New Testament. Sixth, the highest knowledge of man is to know Yahweh. The highest knowledge man can have is to know Yahweh in Jeremiah 9:23. Through 24. In the New Testament, the highest knowledge is to know Jesus. 1 Corinthians 31, 2 Peter 3.18, and John 17.3. 1 Corinthians 31, 2 Peter 3.18, and John 17.3. So if the highest knowledge is to know Yahweh and the highest knowledge is to know Jesus, then Jesus is Yahweh. Point number seven. In the Old Testament, Yahweh is the rock. Psalm 18:31. In the New Testament, Jesus is the rock. 1 Corinthians 10:4 and 3:11. 1 Corinthians 10:4 and 3:11 in comparison with Psalm 18:31. So if Yahweh is the rock and Jesus is the rock, then Jesus is Yahweh. Point number 8. In the Old Testament, Yahweh will be a stumbling stone to the people. Isaiah 8:14. In 1 Peter 2, 6-9, through 9, Jesus is a stumbling stone. So if Yahweh is a stumbling stone and Jesus is a stumbling stone, then Jesus is Yahweh. Point number 9. The object of faith for just, uh, Yahweh is the object of faith for justification, Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed Yahweh and it was imputed to him as righteousness. Also in Isaiah 45, 25. When you compare that with Romans 3, 25 and 26, 
and Galatians 2.16, we realize that Jesus Christ is to be the object for justification, for faith for justification in the New Testament. So, Jesus is Yahweh. And then finally, and there are many, many more than this. I stopped at 10. I could have gone, gone to 30 or 40, but I wouldn't, we wouldn't have time for that. I just wanted to pick 10 good examples to nail it down, to show you this. In Isaiah 43, it is prophesied that one will come who will prepare the way of Yahweh. In Mark, Matthew 3.3, 3, Mark 1.3, John 1.23, John the Baptist comes to prepare the way of the Lord Jesus. So, in those passages, the comparison of Isaiah 40, verse 3, with Matthew 3.3, 3, Mark 1.3, Luke 3.4 and 5, and John 1.23, we see that the way of Yahweh is the way of the Lord Jesus. So, from these passages and many others, you can see that the New Testament shows that Jesus is Yahweh. All of that is under the first point, and that is that divine names are given to Jesus. The second point is that divine worship is given to Christ. Scripture emphasizes that only God is to be worshipped. Anytime an angel appears and man tries to worship the angel, they stop them. But Jesus never stopped people from paying, from worshiping Him or paying Him honor or homage. Matthew 4.10, John 20.28, and Matthew 14.33. Worship is to be paid only to God, but Jesus accepts worship. Secondly, I could give you many more, but I'm just going to, for brevity's sake, hit on a couple of good examples in 2 Thessalonians 2:16 through 17, God the Father and God the Son are invoked to comfort believers. And there it says, that may God the Father and the Son comfort believers. Now you have, what do you have there for a subject? You have the Father and the Son, which is two. But the verb is the third person singular of parakaleo. You have a plural subject and a singular verb, which indicates the identity, one in essence, of the Father and the Son in prayer and worship. Okay, point number two was divine worship is given to Christ, and point number three, divine attributes are ascribed to Christ. All of them are ascribed to Christ. I just want to give you a couple of examples. Life and the power to give life is ascribed to Jesus. John 1.4, our passage, John 5.21 and 26, John 10.10. Second divine attribute is eternity. John 1.1 ascribes eternity to Jesus Christ. John 8.58 and John 17.5. Many other passages do as well. God is immutable and so is Jesus. In Hebrews 13.8, He never changes. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. When you compare Matthew 18, this is the fourth attribute. When you compare Matthew 18.20, Matthew 28.20, and Colossians 1.20, you see that Jesus has to be a number of different places. And the only way He can be all of these places is if He's omnipresent. 
And because He is omnipresent and that is an attribute of deity, Jesus is omnipresent and Jesus is God. And then as we have seen so far in our study of John, He is omniscient. He knew what was in the hearts of man and He has demonstrated His omniscience in several uh, ways with Nicodemus and the woman at the well. John 16.30, John 21.17, John 2.24 and 25 all demonstrate the omniscience of Jesus. So, Divine attributes are ascribed to God. In summary, Jesus is claimed to be God and is God. He has the attributes of God, the titles of God, the activities of God, and He forgives as God forgave. He raised Lazarus from the dead, resuscitated him, gave him back his life, an act of deity. He is the Creator, John 1.3. He is the sustainer of creation here in John 5:17 He forgave men of their sins Luke 7:48 and Mark 2:5 through 10 All of this shows he performs divine works he has divine attributes he has divine titles he is God If Jesus is God if Jesus is not God nothing matters If Jesus is God nothing else matters and the most important thing for us to do is to make learning about him the highest priority in our life. And let me challenge you that you can't do that by showing up once a week for one 45-minute hour message. It demands more than that. It demands making it the highest priority in your life. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank You for the time that we have to study Your Word, to be challenged by the fact that nothing is more important than our relationship with You because You have done so much for us, You have sent Your Son to die on the cross as a substitute for our sins. That there was an insurmountable barrier erected between man and You as a result of Adam's sin. And that You dismantled that barrier brick by brick by the work of Christ on the cross. And that all that is left is for us to accept that solution by faith alone in Christ alone. And Father, we pray that if there is anyone here this morning who is not sure of their eternal destiny, that they would take the opportunity right now to say, Father, I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. That's all that's needed. There's no works involved. There's not joining the church, giving money, or any other religious activity. The Bible says that all that is necessary is faith alone in Christ alone. Now, Father, we thank You for what we have learned today about our Lord and who He is, which provided the basis for what He did. And may we be challenged with the need to know Him better and to develop that intimacy with Him that comes only on the basis of a deep knowledge of Him and what He has revealed to us in His Word, that we might make that the highest priority in our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.